This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. everybody good morning good morning good morning can you dig it i can how are we doing everybody how are we doing i am recording this episode pretty far in advance i've got a i just got from i'm gonna be traveling all over the place I just got back from miami last weekend at this time uh, I, i'm going to indianapolis this weekend i have a you know bunch of other stuff going on in my life life's been kind of crazy recently so wanted to get this out of the way for two reasons one because it was convenient for me to do so that's probably the most probably reason but on all jokes aside I thought that this topic was really important to hit again. I had published an article earlier this year about this same exact subject, but this was the OG post. This was the one that really kind of got me prepped to express this idea to the world. And unfortunately for a lot of other people, it's gotten, or for everybody, I should say, it's gotten much worse ever since that I have initially broached the subject. It's gotten much, much worse. And I have been on record saying, and I will continue to parrot this until people start to realize it more, that this idea and this kind of whole battle inside of the idea of business, of capitalism that's going on right now is going to be the most significant or one of the most significant societal revelations in our lifetimes. I truly believe that it's that it's that it's the biggest problem undergirding a lot of other problems in society that no one is really talking about. People are starting to talk about it now, thankfully. So thanks to people such as uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, the phenomenal author and economist and businessman. I highly respect him. He wrote a great book called Woke Inc. And he has another one called Nation of Victims coming out in September, which is going to be great. I have a very, very strong feeling about that. Vivek is a very, very smart person. He's one of the most overall successful people I've ever met in my entire life. But this was the post that I wrote back in all the way back in May of 2020, where I talked about the emergence of what now people are calling woke capitalism. And it's about the idea of stakeholder theory, which if you know economics, we'll get into this later, is a parody or a spinoff rather of, of shareholder theory, which was pioneered by Milton Friedman back in the 1970s. And we'll get into all this stuff later. But this is a really, really important topic in my opinion. It fascinates me because it's just so evil and pernicious of an idea in so many different ways. And again, not a lot of people realize that it's happening, but it is happening. And I think it would be a shame not to talk about it. So without further ado, here we go. My dad, among others, has a dual mandate when it comes to business talk. No politics, nor religion. And I, probably like you, have heard some of the, some, this in some variation from a lot of people. Keep work at work and keep personal things personal. 
However, my dad is incredibly stringent about it. I view it as his version of the four don'ts, although his is boiled down to two, the into the, wait for it, the two don'ts. It hit home especially hard because he means it especially hard. My dad is a professional to the highest degree, and he takes almost all outside noise out of the equation when it comes to his work and has for his entire career, and thank God for it. So, naturally, I was a bit puzzled when I went into the workplace, and I started to discover that this, this wasn't practiced by really anyone. And it wasn't just politics and religion, it was everything that seemed like it. And maybe it was my own ignorance, but maybe everyone was in the same boat as well. While I certainly wasn't as prepared, I really don't think a lot of people were, especially people from a walk of life that mirrored mine. However, when I detached and looked at the outside world, I began to see why some of the shit from it had started to seep into the walls of the corporate world. And the reason is because it's almost impossible not to talk about some of the shit from the outside world and the inside. Business itself has become a wide net of controversy, which has escalated quite drastically in the last five years. Jeff Bezos is projected, projected to be worth over a trillion dollars in net worth by 2026. Trillion, with a T. And if you haven't noticed, that's a fuck ton of money. According to Investopedia, that would make Bezos the 19th richest country in the world in terms of purchasing power parity, the metric used to convert international currencies to U.S. dollars. He would run right, right above Switzerland and just under Turkey. Politicians, one of their jobs being to regulate business, have taken varying stances to this as well. While left-leaning folks have traditionally pushed back harder against businesses and right-leaning folks have done traditionally less, a weird trend has occurred. In 1982, Congress slammed down on, the Bell, on Bell Systems, which is made up of the communications giant AT&T, among others, and forced them to divest and spin off 70% of their business because of their stranglehold on their markets in Canada and the United States, as they should have. Capitalism has two enemies, excessive government intervention and monopolies. Both make it harder for the system to function. So, it was strange that neither side have even mentioned taking the same actions against companies that easily qualify in this category, such as Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Chris Hughes, a co-founder of Facebook, who along with Mark Zuckerberg and Dustin Moskovitz formulated the original code of Facebook within their Harvard dorm room in the mid-2000s, took an especially scathing stance. In a 2019 op-ed for the New York Times, he went off the top rope and delivered a written word version of the People's Elbow to Facebook and Zuckerberg, calling him obsessively power-hungry and roasting him for the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp. Chris Hughes called on both sides of government to get off the sidelines and get into the game. And to Chris Hughes' credit, he made some astounding points. He cited quotes by people such as Sean Parker, Facebook's first outside investor and president, you may know him as the coked-out Justin Timberlake in the social network, and statistics by outside firms relating to such things as Facebook's addictive algorithms that it spawns throughout all of its products like the plague. It was hard not to take Hughes' claims to heart, or at least to consider their validity. In my opinion, they certainly were. But Hughes had one glaring flaw, one that I and a lot of others saw through immediately. He had no skin in the game. He had already cashed out. By the time you're reading the sentence, and it's probably even more so now, it tends to do this way with these rich people like this, especially tech exit people. He had a net worth in excess of $140 million, most of which was gained from a successful exit of Facebook in 2009. To Hughes' credit, he acknowledges this, but it still doesn't dull the fact that he was clearly knowledgeable about the genesis of Facebook's activities, and he clearly profited off of them. And let's keep going. In the wake of the sledgehammer to the knee impact of the coronavirus in the United States economy, Congress, to their credit, immediately got to work on an economic stimulus package to lessen the blow. And now this is an aside here. 
this is probably not true anymore with all the inflation we're seeing now, but that's neither here nor there. Again, this is written in like May 2020. We didn't know that it was going to get this fucking bad, I don't think at this point at least. Anyways, however, a lot of the criticism was handed out from the mob on social media, saying that it was a corporate, quote, slush fund with no help for the little man. That's something I always find amusing when things like this come to a head. There's no mention of the fact that corporations employ the largest portion of America's workers. While it may be an imperfect method in some ways, in other ways, it's the only method that can potentially reach the largest number of people the fastest. The mob didn't care, and they never do. Another corporate bailout they tweeted from the rooftops on an Apple device while sipping a mopa frap from Starbucks. But of all the outside noise, and there's a lot of that, the one that I found the most uncomfortable came in the form of a book. Mark Benioff is perhaps the most under-talked about tech giant, and quite literally stands six foot four, ever. As the founder and CEO of Salesforce, one of the world's largest software companies and the world leader in customer relationship management, or otherwise known as CRM software, he has an astronomical presence in nearly all industries. Your employer has a good chance of using Salesforce to track data. In 2019, Benioff published a book entitled Trailblazer. It was the single most controversial thing I've ever read related to this concept. It took all of the outside noise I had mentioned and threw it through a megaphone. He didn't hold back and didn't spare any details. It was a slap in the face, to say the least. The thesis of Trailblazer is that business is the greatest platform in the world for change. And not just in a business sense. Benioff took it a step further. Benioff proposed an idea that he dubbed, quote, the fifth industrial revolution. A lot of you are probably like, wait a minute, there's only one industrial revolution, you dumbass. Didn't you take history? Well, yes, listener, I did indeed take history. I didn't do really good at it. I, in fact, I got a one on my AP exam in high school, but that's beside the point. There is more than one industrial revolution, and it's really only the first one that gets the press, unfortunately. The first industrial revolution, as snarky internet guy pointed out, was the one in the mid-1800s which birthed, birthed things like the steam engine and the cotton gin. The second industrial revolution took place in the early 1900s the inventions of the assembly line, which was pioneered by Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company. The third industrial revolution took place around the 1970s with the introduction of computers and microprocessors, which were pioneered by companies such as IBM and Microsoft, among others. The fourth industrial revolution is occurring right now and is defined by things such as artificial intelligence, deep learning, neural networks, and robotics. And warning, there has been debate on this, and a lot of people disagree with this assessment. Take it for whatever you it is, but there are four, and we're in the fourth one, so whatever the fuck. For me, the idea of a fifth industrial revolution seemed impossible at the moment, especially seeing that we're in the middle of the fourth one. It's not even done yet. But not to Benioff. Benioff's fifth industrial revolution was this. Using the technology developed in the fourth industrial revolution to improve the state of the world at large, using business as the catalyst for those changes. And to be frank, this startled me. But what startled me more was how feasible Benioff's idea is, because it's happening right now. 69 out of the top 100 revenue-producing entities in the world are private businesses. The amount of power they have is staggering. They haven't had this much since the robber barons that went by the names of Carnegie and Rockefeller in the early 1900s. Due to the rapid advancements of technology from two more industrial revolutions, it's very likely they have more. A lot more. And Mark Benioff has been the most efficient, swift, and violent wielder of this power in modern America. He threatened the state of Indiana to move Salesforce's second largest base outside of San Francisco 
and they didn't reverse legislation that they thought discriminated against the LGBTQ community. He bullied and shamed the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, over Twitter, oh the irony, for not contributing millions of dollars to a San Francisco-based piece of legislation to help with the ever-increasing homeless population. Several other issues followed, as of several other business leaders and companies. He speaks at Davos with them regularly. Now, this is not meant to be a hit job on Benioff, although I'd very much like to and probably will in the future because I truly believe he is an evil, evil person, but that's beside the point. My problems do not come because of his beliefs. My problems come from the foundation of where he wields his power. The reason for this is that Benioff, among others, is not drawing from a place of truth. He is drawing from a place of misplaced virtue, the kind that our ruling class insidiously uses to warp the perceptions of their actions all the time. He's changing the definition of what function a business is to serve, and that's a problem. This could have unprecedented ripple effects across every spectrum of modern life if left unchecked. But is this the new norm? Should the definition change? These are questions that need to be answered. It turns out they can be answered. They're being debated in business schools and higher education institutions all the time across this country, and I know I graduated from one. The debate that is being held is shareholder theory versus stakeholder theory. That is what the essential grassroots of Benioff's thesis was built off of, and it is what we need to analyze in order to effectively assess this trend. And to do so, we need to look at what these theories are, how they work, and why the debate is happening. After those are tackled, we can look at the implications of both and decide for ourselves which one is right. Well, I can decide for myself because I'm the writer. You actually have to form your own opinion. I know. Fuck me, right? Okay. So... Before we get into the debate of how morally superior everyone can be, let's look at the facts pertaining to what these theories are and how they work. To assess shareholder theory, we must look at its architect, an American economist by the name of Milton Friedman. A career economist who initially served in multiple presidential administrations, Friedman coined the genesis of shareholder theory in a 1970, 1970 essay for the New York Times. Entitled The Friedman Doctrine, Friedman made this theory abundantly clear, quote, in a free enterprise, private property system, a corporate executive is the employee of the owners of the business. He has direct responsibility to his employers. That responsibility is to conduct the business in accordance with their desires. The key point is that, in his capacity as a corporate executive, the manager is the agent of the individuals who own the corporation, and his primary responsibility is to them." End quote. Now, to be fair, Milton Friedman didn't invent this idea. Companies have been around for centuries. He simply put it in more modern terms and therefore got his name stamped on it. What he did is draw a line in the sand about what is and isn't acceptable for business leaders to do. A common misperception to a lot of folks is that a business is owned by the people that run it, because that's false. The company is owned by the people who have, wait for it, ownership of that business. They have a share in the percentage of the business. They are, again, wait for it, shareholders in the business. They have a direct impact on what happens. The executives are simply cogs in the machine. They make a wide array of the decisions in terms of how the company conducts itself and can own shares of the company, but they rarely own that much to have their cake and eat it too. And this is the largest point as to why Friedman's advanced idea is accurate. If the executives and the other cogs of the company went wild and started doing crazy shit like using all their profits to buy brothels and create paper mache animals, the shareholders in the company would probably not approve. 
But if buying brothels and creating paper mache animals of dollar bills increased their return, they would approve, at least according to Friedman. Increasing shareholder value is the main principle of shareholder theory. The reason that it was most appropriate back in the day is that most people viewed business with a singular function in mind. To make money. It's right in the definition. And in fact, the definition of business, according to the dictionary, is, quote, a usually commercial or mercantile activity engaged as a means of livelihood, end quote. According to Friedman in the def definition itself, business has no other purpose. It's kind of like the Terminator. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity, remorse, or fear, and it will absolutely not stop. Shout out to the man Kyle Reese. But it's true. It has a function, and it sticks to that function, at least according to the people who follow shareholder theory. But as we talked about earlier, not all people follow shareholder theory, especially recently. They follow something else, and that something else is stakeholder theory. While there is no concrete definition of the term, it all boils down to one basic principle. A business exists to serve anyone who has stake in the company's existence, not who just has financial ownership. You hear a lot of buzzwords from YoPro business douchebags about this all the time. The triple bottom line, corporate responsibility, ESG, other phrases and words that are bigger and more meaningless than the smaller words that could and should take their place. They all essentially mean the same thing. But the question remains, who exactly has a stake in a company's existence? Well, you see, that's the thing. The answer is very simple and yet very hard, because technically, the answer is everything. The environment, the communities they serve, the government, their customers, suppliers, and vendors, the world at large, not to mention all the people wrapped up in the shareholder theory definition. They all count too. Basically, it's everything that the business could ever impact. This debate is happening for many reasons. The main reason is that people are recognizing the power that business holds. It's astronomical, as pointed out in the examples of my intro. And where there's power, there are people who want to see it wielded in one direction or the other. They want to see changes to causes they care about and view business as the most effective way to see that change. This is especially prevalent to younger people in the new counterculture, who have grown up in an era where they've almost seen nothing but government division and inefficiency. Businesses, in a large amount of people's opinions, or people's opinion, excuse me, get shit done. They can like it or not, but the, they do shit that matters. The government is naturally, and by the way should be, clunky, slow, and unexciting. These people are looking for new and exciting people to bring about change, not old people who've had a second house in D.C. for most of their lives. But there is also a paradox that is happening. This movement towards a stakeholder emphasis is also scaring the fuck out of businesses too. Remember, these are men and women who have been empowered by shareholder theory their entire careers. It's what they based everything on. And any changes to that are threats to them, at least on the surface level. This is why we're also seeing more emphasis on elections. Politicians and the people backing them are dumb. Well, most of them are. They see the trends coming as well and want to get in front of them. Any policy changes that cater to the wants of consumers can have dramatic impacts on how business is conducted and is largely tied to the sentiment of consumers towards those businesses. There is clearly an age divide, and it's something that is currently being exploited by almost everyone in that arena. Depending on how you feel about these issues, you probably lean one way versus the other. There are good and bads to both, like all things, and that's where we should go next. Gee, sorry, I pulled up Instagram for a sec. That was kind of bizarre. <laughs> Ugh, 
blooper reel. Like most things, especially the depths of this thing, there is good and bad inherently built into all of them, and shares and stakes are no exception. The primary good thing about shareholder theory is that it allows all people to share in wealth should they wish to do so. Now more than ever, people can easily invest their own money into things they can view to make them wealthy. Apps such as Acorn and Robinhood, at least before they stopped inside or in stopped the GameStop thing, but that's a whole other fucking situation, can set you up with an account in about five minutes. The opportunity that shareholder theory presents is enormous for everyone. All can win if they play their cards right. Additionally, the people that invest in these companies have staken arguably the most important part of their functionality, the executives that run them. Normally, whether you own a large chunk of a company or a single stock, you have a say in what happens. Contrary to popular belief, as mentioned earlier, these executives don't own the company, the individual shareholders do. And this gives a tremendous amount of power back into the hands of the owners, the true profiters off of shareholder theory. It gives them the freedom and the power to hold executives accountable in order to best serve their interests as owners of the business. They have more power and more say than people realize. And lastly, with no outside obligations, the profits reaped from the business can be used to invest in value creation. And in short, value creation is when a company uses resources in order to invest in things that would create more value for the owners of the company, the people with ownership and shares in it. If the company has no profits, there is no room to do this. Growth stops and wealth is effectively handicapped until the company turns a corner. Without obligations to anything outside of their shareholders, companies can easily create more value if there is original value to derive it from. Here comes the part where I crush your dreams. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, because it never is. The main problem with shareholder theory is what I alluded to in my intro. People don't trust business, at least not to the degree in which they should be able to. A target to increase shareholder wealth and fulfill the Friedman Doctrine can lead, to an, can lead to an obsession. There are countless companies that fit this bill. Arthur Anderson, Enron, WorldCom, a good number of financial institutions around the year 2007. An obsession with shareholder theory can lead to ruthless and unethical profit-maximizing strategies, ones that can come at the expense to everyone involved. All of those cases named above uprooted and destroyed tens of thousands of people. Their lives are never the same, mostly to no fault of their own. Those businesses and the ones in my intro lost sight of what their customers, employees, investors, and other parties truly wanted, and it cost them. If they're not careful, the companies in my intro will most likely suffer the same fate. Following on this point, the obsession with shareholder return can be manipulated in another way, with large executive compensation and power in terms of the shares themselves. Another common misconception that a lot of people have about executives of businesses of all sizes is their main form of compensation is just through their salaries. And that's actually not true either. A large portion of executives are actually paid in terms of stock, which gives them an incentive to try to fulfill the goal of shareholder theory by maximizing shareholder return. But there's a tipping point to where this can become an issue. For example, at the time of this writing back in 2020, Mark Zuckerberg owned about 88% of Facebook's total Class B stock. And that's a problem. The reason for that is that Zuckerberg doesn't have to answer to anyone because no one can outvote him or cast him out. They simply don't have the numbers. The control that Zuckerberg has is enormous. It's arguably more than anyone in the history of an American enterprise since the early 1900s. He capitalized on both the lion and hyena strategy of power and wielded them both to his advantage. There were many reasons that Chris Hughes wrote that article in the New York Times. The power of Zuckerberg was the main reason, at least in my opinion, and it was dead on. A lot of people, especially tech sympathizers, believe that executives will do good things because they make great products and provide good things in their lives. That's all well and good. 
But there's one question I would like to pose back to them, especially when dealing with this kind of unchecked power. What if you're wrong? The last primarily bad thing about shareholder theory is that it can potentially lead to excessive excess. Excessive excess, as I stated in an economy of interest rates, which now turned into chapter two of value economics study of identity, out now on all platforms, two-time number one Amazon bestseller, but that's beside the point, is when you want more for the sake of having more. But what if that more isn't good? What if it destroys more shareholder value than it immediately creates? What if it has negative effects on your employees or other people involved with how the business functions? When you chase growth, you can chase selfishness if it goes unchecked. Check yourself before you wreck yourself, people. Ice Cube voice. For all the good and bad of one thing, that good and bad can also be reflected in the thing that opposes it. So let's look at stakeholder theory next. The primary benefit of stakeholder theory is that it helps the world and create greater purpose if used constructively. The base thought of stakeholder theory means well. It's about looking out for all people and doing the best to benefit them in a holistic fashion. That's something we can usually get behind, as most people want to see the majority of people win rather than lose. Following that, the next point of a benefit of stakeholder theory is a trickle-down effect from the first. It can improve the sentiment of the public towards the private sector. The main point of my intro is that the reputation of businesses has taken a bludgeoning, especially in the past decade. The main reason why the stakeholder movement is gaining traction is because people think that a lot of people in the business world are selfish and stupid assholes who don't care about anything other than money. Stakeholder theory is designed, at least in theory, to fix that and force companies to care about something else. Finally, the last good point I want to make about stakeholder theory is that it can provide new avenues and opportunities for business to expand. Good things happen when your mind is opened. New things can flow easier, and you can see more things you couldn't before. For people running companies, allowing some of these non-stakeholder theories to be presented to you can act as a source of inspiration and initiative that can propel their businesses to the next level, especially with the demographics of consumers that most strongly pushes this stuff. They are the future, and they're going to be the ones buying your products in the most frequent capacity over the duration of their lives, and it's important to recognize their impact. So sunshine and rainbows, yay. But now I'm here to crush your dreams again. The primary bad realization of stakeholder theory is that it can lead to exactly the point I made in my intro, greater unchecked power from executives. I argue that it can create even more than shareholder theory. Because of the virtues behind their intentions, these people can sometimes take you on the status of some kind of self-righteous evangelist savior type, something that's very unhealthy for corporations to have at the helm. The aforementioned beanie off Dorsey Twitter beef is all the proof you need, but it can get worse, and more on that later. The almost as bad second point I want to make is that, if implemented, it can take a jackhammer to businesses that don't have the funds to support it, i.e. most mid-sized and small businesses. In fact, most corporations might not be able to afford it at a sustainable pace without significant funds from some other entity, and probably the government. I view a lot of stakeholder theory as I view things such as increasing the national minimum wage. It can work. Well at least in theory. In reality, however, we're playing a totally different ballgame, especially when it comes to the hyperbolic mid-sized and little man. These businesses can't, most likely can't survive being forced to complete by depleting all their resources to establish their social virtue, even if that virtue isn't misplaced. Who is to say it's their duty? Why should they have to spend the money on something they may not think their business should have to care about? Right or wrong, and I could be either, this question needs to be asked. These questions need to be asked. The last point I want to harp on to the detriment of stakeholder theory is the influence of power politically. Traditionally, it hasn't been the job of the company 
to take on the burdens of the betterment of society outside of the scope of the company itself. Countless leaders in this field have given individually, but the act of delivering on the promise of a company is a relatively new concept that is being introduced to the mainstream. The institution that has traditionally taken on the betterment of preservation of our society is constantly being aligned in this world. The government. In instituting some stakeholder theory-based policies, businesses, especially larger ones, gain significant political clout. Remember the people are tired of old people in Washington, D.C. making outdated decisions thing I mentioned? Yeah, that wasn't just so I could feel clever typing it onto a Google Doc and shouting it into an anchor microphone. It's a real thing. Remember, 69 out of the 100 entities in the world are businesses. The power imbalance is shifting, and is shifting rapidly. And the people that run those 69 businesses know it. Don't think that they don't. So, we've seen that both are flawed and imperfect, like most systems and things are. Sometimes it can come down to picking between two things that just turn out to have one sucking less than the other. I ended my intro by stating that one is more so than the other, and I intend to honor that. I think, to the contrary of a lot of people my age, that stakeholder theory is much more flawed than shareholder theory, even though they both have their disadvantages. The reason I believe that fans of stakeholder theory think the opposite is that, in theory, it benefits everyone. Shut up, you greedy capitalist, someone says. My response? A lot of things work in theory, but theories aren't reality, because only reality is reality. I hold this opinion for a lot of reasons, but because of my love of composing short lists, I've boiled it down to three. The first reason is the threat of escalating unchecked power that these businesses and companies are possessing. I'm a capitalist, and I'm proud to be one. It's the best system for an economy to flourish. History proves that. But if stakeholder theory gets passed, this power could get flipped into something that I don't think a lot of people could see coming. Business taking the place of government. We know the place of the government, even though you could argue it's what the, its main function is, different posts for a different day, and the place of business in society. The United States government is the most powerful organization in the history of the human race. So why does it work? Why don't we complain about its tyranny and power obsession more often? Well, I would argue we do, but we don't really see a lot of people storming the Capitol building to upend our currents. Oh my god, wow, did I seriously write that? Oh boy, holy shit, I just predicted the future. This was written in May 2020, and I just made a joke about storming the Capitol building before 2021. Okay, I'm a fucking prophet. We're going to move on from that. That was, okay, that was, wow, that's crazy. That's hilarious, actually. Bad joke aside, here we go. <laughs> The answer is, I can't get over that. The answer is because the government is not one single entity, it's three. The executive, judicial, and legislative branches coexist for a reason. To check each other. Without our system of checks and balances, there's no fucking way our government wouldn't have fallen apart by now. It's why authoritarian dictatorships can't survive for extended periods of time. There's too much concentrated power for people to sit still and be talked down to. Let's go back to share stakeholder theory. Stakeholder theory is implemented when businesses are supposed to try to use their large amounts of power in order to influence society as a whole. But questions remain. Who checks them? What lines can they cross and not cross? Who gets to even decide the overall, what the quote overall betterment of society is? Let's use Facebook as an example. They have a ton of stakeholder-based ideas, probably due to the fact that the people who run the company are power-hungry and use those policies to control their largely young workforce. The answer to the first question is supposedly the United States government, but that clearly isn't working. Because our ruling class in business and government, as pointed out by our friend Chris Hughes, 
Our government has been peculiarly lenient on this issue. Facebook, by definition of things such as the Sherman Antitrust Act, should never have been allowed to acquire Instagram and WhatsApp, but they were allowed to. As for the second question, the answer is the same. The government should decide these things, but they haven't. There might be too much money at stake. No one in the government has proposed any serious legislation until the, oh yeah, Facebook invades your privacy and knows the color you painted your living room last week thing. The company's mission is to get you addicted to their technology. People like Sean Parker, also stated in the intro, have openly admitted to it. That's a line we should not cross. I think we can all agree on about getting, that getting people addicted to things is not a constructive thing to do in society as much as ours. Things like internet porn and prescription pills prove as much. The answer to the third question resides in one case. Whoever controls the most of the company. Remember, he who has the gold makes the rules. Who controls Facebook? Mark Zuckerberg. And it's not close. He has complete control, actually. He can wield the Facebook hammer as hard and swift as Thor wields Mjolnir. Who's to stop him? No one has before. We shouldn't expect that to change because some jackass in the internet blog writes about it. That would be me, by the way. The second reason is that it contains nearly impossible standards for businesses to continuously sustain without additional funds. Can you imagine if the government or mega companies mandated that every business in our country convert to 100% renewable sources of energy overnight or be sanctioned? Turn over entire staffs in order to fill quotas of diversity and inclusion, even though the possibility remains that people don't want those jobs? Be forced to give profits reap from work to causes they may or may not care about? Oh, and one other thing. If it's nearly impossible standards for large businesses, could you imagine what would happen to our middle and small businesses? It would be a hot knife through butter. It would be over in two seconds, the dream team in the 1992 Olympics. And it would be all imposed on them without their control. Why? Because... Everyone else is doing it. Unlike you, you greedy jackass, they'll say. Monica Langley, the co-author of Benioff's memoir, was originally a writer for the Wall Street Journal before Benioff hired her to be an executive at Salesforce. She was a major part in this whole woke-mongering. In a 2013 interview before she was brought on to work for the company, she dubbed him the, quote, activist CEO. Although he, like most of the time, was originally uncomfortable with the term, he, like most in her corporate ruling class, began to see this not as a compliment, but as a tool of power. If these standards are imposed on businesses without that tool of power in the form of clout, market share, and money, businesses small and mid-sized will fail in droves. All of their profits will dry up like a field in the drought, and it will happen instantaneously without any fault of their own merit in their ability to run their companies. They won't be able to pay their employees, keep up their rent, or provide the necessary resources to deliver their products and services. For most, they can't afford to be activist CEOs. Or can they? See, that's what some people don't realize. The people that run businesses are usually, wait for it, good people. You may disagree with them on some things, fine. But they're not bad to the core. I know a lot of them personally. They run charities, help with nonprofits, and donate a lot of money to different causes. It's great, and one of the reasons the shareholder theory is preferred to me in most all occasions. People don't have to donate, but they do donate. Because they're good people. But what some people can't or more than likely choose not to see, they would rather have it implemented by force. And to who's bidding? Well, theirs, of course. They're the ones who are deciding these things, after all. They're the ones wanting a fifth industrial revolution when we're not even out of the fourth one. Shareholder theory aids this cause because it allows businesses to conduct themselves as they see fit, not in their quest to fit some arbitrary mold with no clear metrics on which, quote, better or not. The companies can do with their profits as they please. If they want to give them away, great. 
If not, they shouldn't have to run their business into the ground to satisfy the mob on social media. Which leads me to my third reason why stakeholder theory should reign supreme. Or shareholder theory should reign supreme, my bad. No one should be forced to do anything. Well, most anything, that is. Obviously, you should use com common sense. You most likely shouldn't shoot anyone. You should never sexually assault someone. Pay your taxes. Don't call black people the N-word. Don't scream at your wife to make you a sandwich unless, of course, she actually wants to make you a sandwich. And instead of yelling, ask politely. Don't be a cock. Don't call men toxic unless they're exhibiting immature behavior that is contrary to what a man should act like. Stuff like that. The anything I want to highlight is simply doing things of a higher virtue that you don't agree with. Everyone has different ones. We all have different sets of opinions and values that we base our lives on. We would be very boring and, frankly, unhelpful and useless as a world if we didn't. Our collective, well-rounded approach to virtue is what improves the world, not forcing everyone to care about a few things they may or might not give two shits about. You should be a steward, not a slave. Keep your house in order and do your best to help others when able. But no one should be a slave to some hierarchy of self-righteous virtue that is all too common nowadays. That's unethical, at least in my opinion. A big flaw that I believe people like Mark Benioff have is what I think a lot about a lot of people, especially in our ruling class, have. A lack of touch. Mark Benioff has, quite literally, never lived in anywhere in the United States other than San Francisco. Sure, he has hubs and workers all over the world. But has he really lived amongst the people? Does he really try to meet people where they are, or does he only see what he wants to see? People like Jack Dorsey would probably say the latter. During the beef between the two tech moguls, Benioff had this to say about the encounter in Trailblazer, quote, and Fast Company magazine accused me of, quote, Twitter-shaming Jack for being anti-homeless. On that point, I was guilty as charged. I framed it as the binary issue I believed it to be. You're either for the homeless or you're for yourself. I sang that chorus from the rooftops, and eventually my city listened. My feud with Jack Dorsey turned Prop C into the hottest issue on the ballot, and on November 6th, Prop C passed by a strong margin. 61% support, end quote. Any red flags go up? Because they should have. Absolutism, absolutism is an incredibly dangerous and divisive thing. This is common enemy identity politics at its worst. At least he had the opportunity to have his cake and eat it too. A lot of the members of the ruling class share that luxury. When you're ignorant to the opinions of others, or even worse, slur them over social media to get the mob to attack your opposition like a coward, you automatically prove the point that shareholder theory enthusiasts make. Again, People like Jack Dorsey would probably tell you something similar. But enough about ruling class hacks like Mark Benioff. It's not all bad. It never is. He makes some strong points in the book, one in particular that would prove contradictory to the whole stakeholder theory point entirely. The first portion of the book is devoted to Benioff explaining the values that he holds for himself and Salesforce. But what's important is where these values are derived from. According to Benioff and me, Values create value. Whatever you create within your life is a direct correlation to your values. This is the life-defining principle of value economics, chapter 5, on Amazon. Go get it. All over again. The more little things, like encapsulate your values that you do, the more your life will be defined by those things. But the question remains, what if those values aren't in line with stakeholder theory? What if they're in line with shareholder theory? Shouldn't we feel free to express those too? The answer is, of course, yes. You can do both. You can find a middle ground. You can run businesses and pursue excellence while giving back and not making it your main priority. Shareholder theory is the theory that best holds water here. 
simply because it gives you the chance to do so. Not everyone has to have the same type of values. Chapter 9, Value Economics, get it on Amazon, by the way. That would violate the third don't. Don't be a hypocrite. Or in other words, don't be a ruling class jagoff. Maybe a fifth don't is in the way after all. I can't believe I predicted the capital riots of 2021. I swear to God, I'm a fucking prophet, man. That is absolutely crazy. But anyway, guys, I hope you liked it. I think that was my intro to the subject, so it might have not have been as strong. as It's definitely not as strong as the ESG Trojan Horse, which I published earlier this year that was talking more about this, about you know woke capitalism, about Vivek Ramaswamy especially. I would go read that one, listen to the podcast a couple weeks ago. But again, guys, I think this is an incredibly important topic. It's going to get more and more important as we progress in this whole weird world where people are so power hungry it's absolutely ridiculous and our job at least my job as i view is to hold the powerful at least a little bit accountable to what they need to do and how they need to govern us and everything i don't mind having a ruling class but when they're kind of just you know being assholes about a lot of shit then that's where i draw the line but anyway thank you guys for listening value economics study of identity two-time number one amazon bestseller on amazon right now about five stars on amazon go get that shit if you haven't gotten it already audiobook is coming soon we're recording it later in the month we have it on hardcover, paperback, ebook, all that other shit, written by yours truly. But until then, guys, own the day, open your mind. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I make some grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?